0: Okay, well, um, good evening, everyone. Thank you for braving the weather. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming. My name is Diana Thompson. I'm the assistant curator here at the National Academy, and on behalf of Director Carmen Branigan and the entire staff, I'd like to welcome you to tonight's review panel. This event occurs once a month here in the National Academy School's Student Gallery and is organized in partnership with artcritical.com. It is generously supported by the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs and the New York State Council on the Arts. Tonight's panelists will discuss several exhibitions currently on view in galleries and museums around New York, though I encourage you to also see the exhibitions currently on view in our own museum. These include three solo exhibitions of works by artists Pat Steer, Jeffrey Gibson, and William Tross Richards and an exhibition of narrative prints from the Academy's collection, curated by printmaker Andrew Raftery. All of these shows are on view through September 8th, 2013, and information on these exhibitions and related public programs is available at the front desk in the lobby. But now, for the review panel, please join me in welcoming tonight's guests, as well as moderator David Cohen, publisher and editor of artcritical.com.
1: you very much indeed. And thank you for being among the heroic stalwarts of uh, the review panel who, who brave the weather and uh, uh, shun Venice and Basel to be here instead. <laughs> um, do we have the pleasure of anybody in the audience who's the first time to the review panel, who's not been here before? Anybody here for the first time? Fantastic. Well, let me, for your sake, and also to remind those who may have forgotten the exact format, uh, what our purpose is and what we do. We've, we, the panel, for sure, and many of our audience have been to see uh, four exhibitions, um, the four listed up here, uh, across the lo- the breadth of, or the, the length of lower Manhattan, uh, Chelsea through Soho, uh, through the Lower East Side, at least. Uh, we've been to see four exhibitions. Um, we uh, have a PowerPoint presentation for each, Show. What we do is we present a visual reminder of the first two shows we're going to talk about. The panel discusses them one by one. Uh, Then there's an opportunity for the audience to uh, let off some steam, voice some opinions, probe the panel with some questions, and we then repeat the exercise for the second pair of exhibitions. Uh, The event is recorded. Uh, and later for, for later podcast at artcritical.com. And um, at Artcritical you can hear a, a very full archive. We're now, I think, on about number 60 of the review panel, which is in its ninth year. Um, we have the honor tonight uh, to have with us a participant in the very first panel back in 2004, uh, the New York Times art critic Ken Johnson, Ken, uh, besides his critical uh, journalistic activity, uh, is also the author of um, a, a book um, on uh, the psychedelic experience in art. Um, uh, I'm blanking on the title. Is it Are You Connected? No. <laughs> are You Experienced? Are You Experienced? <laughs> yes. Are You Experienced? Published by Sorry. Prestel. Um, uh, which, uh, uh, subtitle again?
2: How Psychedelic uh I keep forgetting. It's either Consciousness or Consciousness. Actually, the
1: editor of the book is in the audience, so uh, uh, he may have forgotten as well. I don't know what you guys are on, so... uh,
2: (laughs) (laughs) How Psychedelic Consciousness Transformed Modern Art.
1: That sounds good enough for me. Excellent. Um, uh, To to his right, and my left, Chloe Rossetti, who uh, is an artist, filmmaker, and writer... Uh, She contributes to artforum.com and to the Brooklyn Rail. And um, Eva Diaz, Diaz, uh, who's flown in this morning from London, uh, from Manchester, maybe via London, I don't know, (laughs) uh, who is uh, assistant professor of art history at Pratt Institute, a regular contributor to Art Forum, Um, and is the author of an upcoming book uh, to be published in the winter of this year. um, which, uh, which details the um, uh, experimentations in art education of the mid-20th uh, century uh, and is uh, published to coincide with the 80th anniversary of Black Mountain College. What's the title of the book?
3: It's called The Experimenters, Chance and Design uh, at Black Mountain College.
1: Fantastic. that's from MIT?
3: Uh, University of Chicago Press.
1: Oh, so, University of Chicago Press. Okay. Great. So, uh, distinguished panel, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome them. Lovely. Now let's take a look at the... If we could dim the lights, please. Thank you. Okay. So, um, we can... Just keep that on the screen. That's fine. So, Lorna Williams... Very rich, complex to my eye, um, use of appropriation and, and of uh, um, uh, the found object, the transformed object. Um, a rather, Perhaps I could be accused of a rather anally retentive organization of the panel this evening in that I put objects in our first half and images in our second. Um, although, of course, objects are always images, and images always have an object base as well. But um, I think these first two shows really have us, force us to think about uh, the process in which they're made, besides uh, engaging with um, uh, the, the, the potential uh, meanings and experiences they generate. Um, Who would like to start me off with uh, Lorna Williams, who's burning with something to say about, about the effect? How, how, what, what, what do these mean? What do they feel like? What we'll be looking at, um, Eva? Could you uh, could you? Give, we, we saw some images there, but uh, um, can we can we can you give us a sense of um, of the of the impact of these objects, the 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 scale, the 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 kind of uh, intimacy of experience that they demand?
3: Sure. I mean, I really liked the the way there was this richness materially, a real kind of polymorphous experimentation with all different kinds of things. So there would be exacto blades and sea urchin husks and, you know, snakeskin and driftwood. And so there was this combination of, in particular, what rubbed in the show and what seemed like was um, kind of Lorna's intention was to kind of move nature and the man-made into this sometimes uncomfortable relationship. So um, some of the figurative works like the rooster or if that was like a tom um, turkey that you saw very briefly would have certain elements made out of fanned out exacto blades and then it would also have this kind of very rich um, taxidermied snakeskin surface too. So there was this lush mixture. Um, I personally didn't love the figurative works as much because sometimes they felt a little heavy-handed. The skull works that you saw, um, some of the ones that that kind of forced materials together, um, you saw one very quickly that was a husk of a pipe that became this, a very large pipe that became a kind of an exoskeleton for something on a plinth with all of these different kind of filigreed elements. It's, it's really nice when it wasn't such an obvious thing that it, she was making like this is a skull or this is a turkey but that there was this ambiguity of the materials put together that then allow you to kind of sort of see that discomfort between nature and, and the the metallic I guess man-made um, but, but there were just so many really lovely passages in the work of just like a lot of stuff brought together that just still was able to kind of form some like a kind of gestalt of like this thing really has a, a very sensitive surface but is also materially just very rich in the way you can kind of piece together how it was made. So that was my, you know, was kind of...
1: Yes, So there were a lot of passages, weren't there, uh, Chloe, of, of um, um, really uh, uh, transforming objects to, to represent. It, it really is in a way kind of assemblage um, in the tradition of Picasso's Bicycle seat turned into uh, the the skull, um, or or the the the, uh, the found car that becomes like the the bamboo face. It felt to me like um, I mean I felt I felt it was uh, rich and, and very inventive and humorous, uh, and uh, but but it, it it definitely was within that. Um, um, very skillful, look what I've seen, look what I can turn this into. Did, did it seem did that um, enrich or debilitate the work to you? Did you notice the same? And did you, did you have a feeling about that?
4: I mean, I just saw it more as very personal. I see it as a woman who grew up in New Orleans, as somebody, I, I saw the bayou in it, I saw this sort of idea of scavenging and trash, and there was even that video of her actually scavenging and putting a piece together. Mm-hmm. It felt very non-art historical canon to me. In fact, the snake... Can we go to the snake? No, we just
1: talk... We just just describe it. Okay, Uh, we just describe
4: it. There was one piece that had a snake in it, and the snake was representing a digestive tract, which I liked. I liked it it was less obvious. And there was a part of the snake that was bulging to me, and that was sort of an interesting moment because I was like, okay, did the snake just eat something? Clearly not. It's been taxidermied. And then I found out that was actually her pet snake that had died that she then taxidermied. So that's what I mean about the element of the personal. It's like very one-to-one relationship between these objects and these animals that she's working with, which I enjoyed very much. But then, of course, the snake had human teeth in it, and then that became a little too didactic for me. So I think there were moments that felt very organic and very personal, and then moments that moved a little bit into that sort of more didactic realm.
1: Well, how, did, how did the ratio work for you, Ken, between, between um, whimsical, personal on the one hand, and... Um, Uh, Connecting to languages of art, on the other.
2: Well, I I didn't I was um, I like the show a lot, and I usually don't like this sort of voodoo kind of putting together skulls and bones and and uh, Mm -hmm. remnants, sort of magical omelets and stuff like that. But it's so intricately crafted. It's kind of amazing uh, how she puts. Everything, she's not just gratuit, just slapping things together and saying, you know, look at the relationship between this and that. Like, there's one thing that she uses bullets a lot and uh, these hollow-point bullets. And then you see, I don't know if it's in the turkey or, or where, but some of them are hollow-point bullets, and then you realize that some of them are actually ballpoint pen ends. So she has this kind of uh, way of... Of seeing objects, in a, seeing aspects of objects that are different from what they're what they actually are normally. So there's this constant kind of transformational uh, thing going on. So every thing she does is sort of thought thought of in that kind of imaginal, transformative way, and and she's really really skillful. Mm-hmm. There's there's a, a long board, there's teeth in the middle of it, and and she's cut out. Along the grain, creating these sort of concentric uh, leaves that slightly fold out, and and uh, I think just as as she's obviously knows how to work wood, and and all of that is, I think it's a lot different than Picasso. Uh, Picasso would never invest that degree of, of craftsmanship in his work.
1: That's that's totally <clears throat> true. I, I I see it as being, but I, I saw not just Picasso but all kinds of other um, there's a lot of heraldry it seemed in there and it, it, it seems um, um, yeah it's, it's, it's going back and forth between this spontaneous found and the very highly considered thought through um, kind of lexicons of, of um,
2: yeah like there's a there's a there's a snake coiled up inside a hollow tree uh, log and it's, just, it's not like just, oh, there's a snake in the log. It's like the snake fits perfectly in, in it.
1: Mm. But usually, usually, though, with contemporary art, don't we, in, in a way, part of the initial appeal of assemblage and collage, um, even though they are um, strategies that require great skill, a lot of it was to get away from the uh, uh, overly finessed kind of... Uh, uh, Western tradition and and reanimate. Yeah, she's expression. not a skiller. She's not a de skiller. No. Right, but, but There's but no
4: she's chance there. It isn't like let me put these things together and see what's gonna happen. There's a high level of intimacy and of fitting things together exactly right. It's highly skilled and highly crafted. It doesn't feel like that kind of assemblage of just like, well we'll just see what happens when we put these two objects together. I think there's right. very little of that actually.
1: Sometimes there's sometimes the materials used come with all their associational baggage. Sometimes they're quite freed of that in order to be simply to work formally. Mm -hmm. Um, Is that that just the luck of the draw, whether it's one or the other, or do you think, is is there actually a level of uh, meaning in whether the object is uh, free or not of its associations either, do you think?
2: I
3: thought, I mean, I agree with Ken that there's a kind of cultic or ritualistic element to to the material and the way in which some of the materials form objects that that seems to me to sidestep some of the earlier collagist projects like Romare Bearden or Betty Saar that seem to have a very pointed notion particularly of a kind of urban experience of African Americans and really of social injustice and and inequality and I didn't really see that in this kind of work that the some of the play with materials became um, really Baroque and and sometimes I didn't quite feel that that the undertow of the cultic or of different materials like taxidermy with all its connotations of you know like preservation death not loud enough
5: okay.
3: thanks um, Yeah, so that that to me was a a kind of haunting of the show that was somewhat unrecognized is that there's a great tradition of this kind of assemblage work in not just art history, but specifically, you know, experiences of, you know, African-American culture. And I just was sometimes a little, you know, just kind of wondering where it made me curious about what her next work would be because I think there's just this, again, this great, as everyone on the panel said, this great craft lushness to the to the material, but then I just wasn't quite getting there with how a skull or a rooster, you know, could do something for me in terms of the semiotic, you know, like, what does this mean? <laughs> um,
2: I think you know. I, I uh, um in terms of some sort of African American tradition, I, I mean, I, I found a lot them to be very literary in a way. Like, so I think of like magic realism of Toni Morrison, say. I, I mean, in in some way, there's that sculpture that's that's these honeycomb-shaped modules, and then you see that. Uh, they're made out of panel, honeycomb panels, so you, you have these tiny honeycombs. I mean, that's that's really smart, you know? And I think, like, she, then I, I start wondering, well, should they, should they actually be motorized or something? I mean, they, they, she could go in that direction. I don't know if that would be a dumb way way to go or, or an interesting way to go. Uh, like the turkey could be flapping its wings or something. Um,
1: but there's already. Right.
2: Um... But there's. A, but I feel there's. There's this overall sense of a kind of narrative, mythic mm-hmm. uh, vision that, like Ava like says, I. I wonder how that. I feel she's very young. What is she like? Twenty-seven. Twi- Twenty-seven. Yeah, and 20. I. And she's a slow worker. It's not like a, f- uh, a quick sort of.
1: Uh, and she does it herself. It, it would seem.
2: Uh, no assistance, I imagine. Mm-hmm. I uh, mm-hmm. and um so it'll be really interesting to see how 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 she, she evolves i think
1: i wonder though if i mean it, it, there there was a very um
2: oh by the way i i, I just to, i reviewed her first show which was a year or two ago and i said this kid's going to go somewhere so all right and she, she, <laughs> she,
1: she went all the way to the review panel so, so uh,
6: <laughs>
1: and uh we, we covered Sarah Z a few review panels back, and she's gone all the way to Venice. So this is a, a, a key stop um, on on the uh, upwardly mobile route of uh, uh, artists. But um, I, I actually, following that theme, I, I, I uh, Chloe, um, one can kind at of, one level, just say, here's an artist who has found materials and found ways to work materials uh, appropriate to her vision. Uh, but on the other hand. Um, it's very. I, I found myself sort of feeling a little bit in a sort of science fictiony kind of territory. Um, that uh, wondering what kind of that, that these words maybe even sort of weird um, hybrid creatures that uh, have, have found ways to evolve in some post nuclear way, uh, actually incorporating um, debris into their into their being in some funny way. Uh, that 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 collision of uh, the, the organic and the um, man-made um, and the recycled and the, um, uh, and things in a raw kind of natural state. Um, was there, is there a little bit of a, a theatricality going on uh, in the actual uh, bringing together of materials, do you think?
4: I think certainly, I think, I think one of the main issues that we all seem to be having is we're not quite sure what her mythology is, what she's trying to bring to the surface. And when you have this sort of coming together of these very machine-like creatures in the front, and then you move to the back and you have hens and snakes and wood and honeycomb and snakeskin, it really... I have trouble putting those two together. I'm not mm-hmm. quite sure, especially because the hen was actually an homage to Rama Bearden, so it's like she's mm-hmm. also trying to fit herself within a certain canon, which again takes me a step away from the sort of futuristic mm-hmm. sci-fi creatures in the front. Mm-hmm. So I definitely am picking up on that. I'm not quite sure... To see bullets nested among a snake,
2: mm-hmm. yeah,
4: it just takes me in, in sort of different figurative directions. Mm-hmm.
2: I, that's interesting you say. I've been I've become a, I'm, I've been binging on the TV show Lost, which I've never seen before. <laughs> and what's interesting, I mean, I wonder that what the, there are metaphysical implications in right. in the work, which which may be what prevents it from. Uh, being embraced by the the sort of uh, neo-Marxist juggernaut that dominates art history these days. So, you know, uh, and I wonder, like there's that one piece, there's some kind of construction hanging within a a a pyramid made from copper pipe. And so, you know, is that alchemical? Is it futuristic? It's, uh, but you know, like right making, Sculptures is not like writing a novel, and, and and so I I guess you're you're what I mean I'm I'm sort of I'm very happy with the show myself I'm not I don't find it frustrating. Um,
1: no, but, but, but I, I do. I, I, well, I think we all find it satisfying, but our satisfaction wants us to go to a deeper level to right. work out what it really might be, be might might mean.
2: You mean she should be more explicit?
1: No, no. I'm saying we need to do more work to say to decide among ourselves or individually, um, not just okay. This is this is this is great skill. It's uh, uh, oh. interesting images, uh, uh, nice uh, bringing together of different materials. But I, I would want to say take it to the next level and say, okay, um, this kind of work is better than that kind of work, or is, is is one way. But the other is okay. Does this mean something? What does this mean to me? So. um, I found the most engaging images were the, those which were the most, as you say, metaphysical, uh, sort of arcane. Uh, actually, the Archimbaldo like um, uh, use of things which were intended or, uh, or crafted uh, for something else in their prior life, which have become another uh, organic thing in this life. So, uh, you know, in Archimbaldo, a cucumber becomes a nose. Well, in, in Williams, uh, the, these pipes become a vertebrae. And uh, but it, it, they're not they, they keep their pipiness right. and at the same time they really sort of anatomically work as vertebrae so that seems to me very very uh, skilled um, and then uh, without being a neo-Marxist in the dominant ascendancy of art history nonetheless I, I guess I'm enough of a modernist that all that skill makes me think uh, careful isn't this maybe a bit craft isn't this a bit out of uh, art discourse by, precisely by being so Kind of, tricksy in a way. Um, is that is so? The vertebrae. Let's focus on the vertebrae. Is that just a source of uh, exhilaration and pleasure at the, at the at the craft that she's brought to bear there, or is there a sense of um, uh, a little wariness at that degree of craft? Did you have any of that dilemma, Eva?
3: Well, that particular piece, I think, was my favorite, if not one of my favorites. I guess there were several passages like that and and i and i suppose because in the video you find you know she you, you see her finding this this kind of husk of a pipe and it becomes a kind of exoskeleton for this for this piece and and, and exactly as you said that there's this duality in the material where you can see it in its history it's this kind of rust rusty old thing and then the way it's it, you know has this amazing new life as this object in combination with others and also brought into the context in which you see it um, in an art, art gallery, but also just see it among, um, you know, among its, um, its, its kind of combination. So, you know, and I, and I guess it's just a question of those pieces that were more literal in representation, like this is a thing in the world. I just didn't find them as interesting. But I, I mean, again, I really liked the way there was that polymorphous experimentation in form that i just love when you go into a studio of an artist like that and there's just like things just being brought together all the time that make you see an exacto blade differently or make you see a bullet or you know that those things are just able to be it's a kind of a vector of a new vision you know that an artist provides but you know I guess for me I just liked it when it was pushed to this point where there was a truly strange combination that was not going toward the literal like these are the skull figures and, and I liked also um, the formulation you just made about the, the sci-fi hybridity and it makes me think of the novelist Margaret Atwood and some of her um, sort of creatures of you know sort of Science turned into foods, or you know, and so this, uh, you know, that didn't occur to me. But now, as you mentioned it, you know, there there was this this way in which the you know the man made and the the kind of organic were in this very uncomfortable relationship. Um, But yeah, I liked it when there was a less figurative. I don't know. I think (laughs) uh, uh,
2: maybe what you're one way to formulate what you're getting at is. Like what's the state of consciousness that this, yes. mm-hmm. this kind of work proposes to infect us with, and right. and it's and it's an alternative kind of consciousness, mm-hmm. one that, for one thing, it's a very animistic one, one that sees sort of a potential life, other kind of life, in almost everywhere you look, and and what's the value of that kind of consciousness? Yeah, I think it's pretty cool. You
1: know, yeah, pretty cool. I I think though that. Um, a sculpture is you, you said it's not like a novel well i, I think it's more like music that hmm. um, one can be listening to say a piece of baroque music that's evoking a storm um, uh, or a witch's sabbath or something and you can be actually savoring the musical intelligence at the same time that i mean your brain can be savoring the musical intelligence at the same time that your heart is feeling you know you're feeling cold and timid because there's a storm going so you know we can sort of split between uh, standing out outside of the experience and admiring the way something is crafted, and being sucked into the experience to have something that um, um, is uh, you know. Uh,
2: Do you think she's like evoking the sublime in in a way? I,
1: I, think, um, I think I think mean, potentially I yeah. she is. She's either evoking the sublime or she's playing a game with the language of art. Um, or maybe she's doing both. But uh, if she's doing both, I need somebody to connect them for me. Or else, let's say, let's make a decision. Let's uh, have a show of hands. Who thinks she's evoking the spline? <laughs> no, I mean, obviously that's... Uh...
4: Well, I think the split occurs in the show. You have some pieces that let the viewer in that haven't become something yet. And some <clears throat> pieces that have already become something. Right. So for me, the vertebrae piece is very strong because it hasn't yet become anything. We don't know what, what's going to happen there. So it's still in the middle of its metaphysical transformation and my consciousness opens up.
1: And also the gestalt is the most dense in that one, isn't it? Right. I mean, the, actual, the overall gestalt of that piece and the uh, intricate details seem to be uh, really calibrated. Whereas in some of the other pieces, you've got this... Nice woolly all over the sort of place thing, and then you stand back and you can see it. it's an image, an animal of some sort. Then you go in and say, "Oh, I never noticed that. Look at those teeth that are actually embedded into the wood. Mm-hmm. Ooh, that's kind of a little sinister, but it's <laughs> kind of a little. It's quite inspiring as well. But like the Australian um, artist with the Italian name, um, uh, gone from my mind, yeah. uh, P-
0: uh,
1: Piccinini. Piccinini, uh-huh. Um That sort of." Uh, effect, but less Hollywoody, I suppose, in 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 uh, in Williams. But so, what I want to know is whether um, uh, is is if it, is it yeah is it what what's the what's the consensus? Uh, is she somebody um, who's? Uh, uh, Chloe was quite adamant in her her opening statement. She she didn't feel this was about the language of sculpture so much. It was a very personal and uh, sort of authentic um, expression um, do, do, what, what, what leads or what is the lasting impression of the work here? Is, is it the mood? Is it your own mood that it puts you in? Or is it um, her language and her mind and what it makes you wonder about her mind? What, that, that's, that I think would be my final question about her.
3: Well I guess I mean Like the whole New Orleans thing. I mean, though I'm very interested and have spent a great deal of time in New Orleans, and I'm just fascinated with the kind of hybridity of the place and the way that becomes a a kind of, you know, just a contradiction in our own culture, especially in the aftermath of of Katrina, about what to do with, um, you know, poverty in this country, what to do with, um, you know, with flooding, (laughs) environmental change, all these things. I just don't sometimes with work that relies so heavily on the kind of mythologies of New Orleans I get I feel like you know that that part of the work to me I guess and maybe it just gets back to this issue of the kind of directly figurative references and and the way in which certain of the materials do draw so heavily on that tradition of um, you know of a kind of I wouldn't even call it a sort of Mardi Gras, it's not so much like feathers and glitter or whatever, but there's that kind of NOLA work that um, you see a lot down there, which is like really intricately devised and refers to traditions and also starts to feel like it's a, it's kind of not pushed far enough. And I feel like there's a tension in that show that I found interesting. And, and again, that's why I'm, I'm interested in where the work will develop because some of it I felt maybe just wasn't pushing that far enough away from that um, that kind of NOLA stuff, you know, which is like the glitter and Mardi Gras, like, stuff. You know? <laughs> and there were just elements of that in the work that that may be why I kind of just was rubbed a little bit the wrong way, that it, it does just feel like a, a common mm-hmm. thing. Um,
1: right, right. Uh, any final words on that, uh, the issue of... Um our own feelings or the, the artist's voice, which, 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 is, which, which resonates more with us in, in the final analysis? I mean,
4: I think what's exciting is the possibility that it could be both. I think somebody with a strong sense of place and a strong sense of craft then effuses a sort of generosity in her work if she can keep it open and not become too closed and literal. Mm. Mm-hmm. can really allow the audience to step in and complete that cycle of metaphysical transformation. Mm-hmm. And I think that comes with age and experience, and I think that that would be a very exciting thing to see more of.
1: Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, then
2: we'll all... I'm finding myself persuaded by all these reservations. It, uh, may, I think maybe what, what could happen is if she mapped what she's doing onto some other system, um, mm-hmm. like... Ava was uh, telling me she's working on a, bu- a book about Buckminster Fuller. You know, mm-hmm. maybe some some bigger vision that where the, the sort of the local could inter uh, cross fertilize with with some other something else, so that you don't have that sense of, sort of claustrophobia uh, that seems to be bothering the panel.
1: <laughs> uh, I'm not sure I accept that as a verdict on the consensus, but it's, uh, I welcome it as, as your point of view. Excellent. And now, uh, Brock, Brock Enright. Um, uh, here, we have a, uh, here we have a really rather interesting collision, don't we, of uh, the conceptual and the craft. Um, a piece of anecdotal information, the artist apparently is the chief draftsman in the uh, Robert Longo factory. Um, uh, so here is an artist uh, um, who's enjoyed or achieved certain uh, notoriety uh, partly as a result of the documentary made about him uh, partly as a result of his own earlier antics and efforts um, who is also uh, um, very much a, a participant in um, uh, a kind of system of, of making art uh, in, in our present in which uh, uh the that the hands of, of one and the mind of another are uh, brought together, but remain discreet. Um, did this show add up, uh, or, or was it a, an assemblage of kind of crafted surfaces and textures? Uh, Ken, I uh,
2: I think that the 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 uh, w- whatever weaknesses there were in in Lorna Williams's work are are really like full blown in in, in his work. Like this kind of cosmetics of old surfaces applied to, uh, in some tricky way to say rich crack Ritz crackers, mm-hmm. uh, and or, or or Doritos or something like that. I, I <clears throat> it seemed like a lot of cleverness in the service of uh, of of fairly routine thinking about romantic ruination or something Uh, yeah so I I was not a big fan no
1: right Um, Chloe how about yourself were you persuaded by something I was a huge
4: fan so I don't know how this is going to play out just
6: the
1: way we like
2: it (laughs) wow
4: yeah I mean I thought it was hugely cohesive and I think that there was I love the sense of airiness and peacefulness combined with this sense of incredible anxiety which I think was sort of a beautiful evolution of maybe this artist as a person as well. Like Are we talking
2: th- about the same person? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, we're definitely on Van Damme Street, and we're, we're def- <laughs> de- definitely All with right. the Doritos and the, the Ritz Crackers and the Verdigris. Uh, um, so, um, uh, de- describe a, be- a piece that really got you going in the, in the show, was it was it the overall, was it the overallness of the of the variety of the the, the, the show, or was it was there was there a piece in particular that you could. Talk the audience through some of the excitement that you felt with it.
4: I feel like I want to talk
1: about all of them. Um, okay, well, <laughs> just just pick one, or, well, or talk, talk about all of them as a collective. Well,
4: sure. I'll talk about one that isn't my favorite one, but I thought kind of tied it together, which was the the vibrating spoon in the corner. That was very quiet. Uh-huh. I was I was walking through the space, and I felt very calm and yet very ill at ease. And then I found out there was this spoon on a motor that was making this like really intense sound it was very it was like the exact pitch to calm you down and rev you up at the same time Mm -hmm. and the name of the piece was nervous spoon meditating rain and it really was this exact it gave this mood that was exactly halfway between being very stressed out and very calm and it was this like bent spoon that was hidden away that you could barely sort of see that looked very fragile and broken Mm -hmm. and yet was very delicate and intimate and i really Mm -hmm. i really enjoyed that piece very much
1: um, Eva one could almost have the sense uh, before you get get up close and realize that you're looking at Ritz crackers of, of being with a kind of uh, almost pat steer like experience of uh, the the oceanic sort of waterfall um, uh, a very natural texture so in a way a bit like uh, Williams that, that macro micro the back and forth the recognizing uh, the the prior life of some appropriated things in the work and or just having that oceanic letting it wash over you sensation. Mm -hmm. Um, Do do you think that there was a a, a skillful, clever back and forth between those things or just a confusion between those things?
3: Um, I mean, I guess I'll back up in answering that question just to say that I... I mean, Brock Reich is known before for kidnapping collectors Mm -hmm. in this kind of strange game of um, what he called ordeals. So this work is already, like, oceanically like, calm <laughs> compared 29. to, you know, this like straight-out-of-MFA career that he um, that became quite um, sort of Publicize. I mean, it was showing up in all different kinds of, like, Rolling Stone articles and whatever. So my curiosity about the work is always through this lens of, like, this guy made, you know, hundreds of kidnappings of willing collectors in those kind of strange torture scenarios that were filmed in which he enlisted all of these different people to satisfy these perverse fantasies of collectors to, like, have a sexual, like, imagination of art in a way. A lot of this was kind of, like, deeply... Like troubling stuff, you know. So, that I guess is always going to kind of filter into what seems like, you know, this this kind of. Sometimes the the work seemed. I mean, in this show, seemed like okay. This verdigris idea is like, it, apparently, it means the patination of copper. So this green color was a consistent one. I mean, it seems like okay. That's just a formal exploration. But then these, you know, as Chloe was mentioning these. Um, these kind of incommensurate things that you had to grapple with, like the Doritos, you know, made in copper. Or I found one, the work that I was kind of mystified and interested in the most, and it was only not a great detail of it shown here, is this kind of horrible red velour pattern. And then these Ritz crackers stuck off of it with the holes of the Ritz crackers (coughs) threaded with red thread. So... It's on the Ritz crackers and, and they're themselves kind of with this copper paint and patinated green. And so they're floating on this field that's like this really bad velvet painting kind of field. And yet the way that the red thread goes through the Ritzcracker cracker makes this kind of runic figure. Like that you, suddenly it's like a secret alphabet that you never realize that the Ritzcracker cracker has this thing it's telling you, you know, so it's like the total paranoid work, right? You know, it's like the paranoid person is the one that has all the facts, right? Like the Ritzcracker is talking. It's, it's got this language, this runic language. And so suddenly the very benign element of this abstraction becomes mm-hmm. full of this anxiety of the everyday object turning into something that speaks to you and what would your... Ritz crackers say, you know, it's like this kind of horrific, like, you know, dialogue that you would have with the everyday object, you know, like, what if you don't like what it says? I mean, so that, that I really thought was this, this interesting tension in the work that mm-hmm. I don't know how to read it through those kidnapping stuff, but it seems like it's there in the way that these things become unfamiliar, but also kind of estranged from comfort, you know? Yes. Yes.
1: Yeah. So Ken, um, are you, is, is there a, are you still, pers- uh, adamant the feeling that the, the, the Dorados and the Ritz Crackers is a, a kind of um, art school kind of gimmick or is there a, is there a potential uh, that there's kind of a hidden uh, esoteric language or at least the uh, the hint of a possibility of such an esoteric language a bit like um, well, Matthew I, I, Barney and Vaseline. For
2: I want to ask Ava, do you really believe what you're saying?
3: No, I mean I just thought that that, that piece I mean it's particular... such an
2: imaginative response do you do you think that's he that's what he intends by with that thread sewn into the holes in the crackers well, I mean I
3: just think like the use of those and I think with him and this is another like I don't know this is one of those things I don't exactly buy about the personal history is like this use of consistently like oh rich crackers mean something to him there was this um, you know, a, a child mask of his that was in the show. So there was apparently, you know, and then this, uh, this cat whisker that was in the poppy seeds had something to do with some story of his childhood. So those things, I think that there is this narrative that he's trying to make that these things do mean something. But when I responded to that, it's just seeing when an artist again has this this ability to take the familiar and let you look at that Ritz cracker differently, right? It's like, oh wow, if you make this weird language mm-hmm. in it. You know, it's, it's there all the time. It's just nobody has pointed out to you. Like it, it is a kind of And you found, threat. I mean, you're
2: not, you're, you're not like this, it's, it sounds like special pleading. Like you, you really believe that.
1: Well, I mean, you're making, a, you're, make, me. you're making a
2: case <laughs> for it. But,
1: <laughs> um. I, I, but surely what, what Eva has done is offer a, a personal imaginative Response to the work. Right. So, I have to, words I'm there, very
2: embarrassed to confess that I, I knew nothing about this personal history. Okay, so well, I just, I, 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 didn't. I guess I didn't do my homework. But I just went, but, but I just went in cold, and I, but that's, and that's, I what I saw We're in the and,
1: show, so there's no need to be embarrassed. We're not we're not reviewing the, the oeuvre or the career just or the man right. just, just to show so to me there's just uh, these
2: it's just all these simple dualities like right. the, the cracker is food and it's made into something that looks like cast uh, bronze with like an ancient Foss, uh, not a fossil, but an artifact. Mm-hmm. Yes,
1: it is. It uh, is. I think it is it, it is, uh, is copper coated, and now we're seeing the the verdigris accrue on those crackers. Um, uh,
2: so it's like you know, what would what would if, you know in three hundred or eight hundred years, people are gonna what people are gonna find of our culture are gonna be like fossilized Doritos or you know, right, uh, <laughs> right, and it seems like a really th- sort of a sophomore kind of uh, take on. It is, Culture. Chloe, it is a
1: bit of a talking point, isn't it? You go away, and so there's the whimsy, the humor, the, but it's it, the, the well tried kind of art school kind of thing in a way of, oh, he uses Ritz crackers. Um, or is it simply that, or, or, or how, does the, how does the Ritz cracker work for you? What, what's, what's well, apparently,
4: there? Brock loves Ritz crackers. And he has, <laughs> really, and he has he, he apparently gathers thousands of them in his studio, and a hand goes through each one to pick out the exact ones that he thinks will be the best in his pieces. Does
7: and the reason why
4: he loves Ritz crackers in particular <laughs> is the fact that when you thread it through with the red thread, you make a self-tessellating pattern that can go through to infinity, which is also featured on the piece on the opposite wall.
2: Mm-hmm. Wait, say that again?
4: So when you when you put the red thread through a Ritz cracker, you make this kind of cube that can self-tessellate into infinity.
3: Wow. <laughs> it's that cubert. There was that cubert pattern Q- that sits... I looked it up. It's called tumbling blocks pattern, and it's you know remember the, the video game Cubert where you have those mm-hmm. blocks that come up, and so it's an isometric uh, foreshortening of a cube. So really, so, in you know, a Ritz cracker, if you thread so that, it in a certain way, you so get. So there's actually
1: there's cube. actually more Buckminster Fuller than Andy Warhol in this appropriation <laughs> of the Ritz cracker. So it's actually it's not he's not playing a game with the the banality of Ritz crackers, but he's actually. Uh, visually and formally and conceptually excited by a certain uh, pattern that is generated by the way in which the impressions are in this particular fast food. Is that, is that, is that correct? <laughs>
2: does, that, does the Dorito have a similar sort of... Uh...
4: Apparently the Doritos... He, he hangs, I asked the gallerist, I said, why are the Doritos hung so low when everything else is hung so high? And she yes. says that... Uh, she says that it's, that um, for him, they're like a vagina. so And it was hung at vagina height, which I then verified. So, you know, it's, it's a little different, but a little similar. I mean, I'm sure he has thousands of Dorito vaginas in his studio too, but I can't verify that.
1: Right. We won't uh, probe that one. But, um, uh, yeah, okay, so... But should... should you're enriching, you're enriching everyone's experience of these Doritos and Ritz crackers with this information. Now, is this, a, is this therefore a case of an artist who's got this very powerful intellect and imagination and, and sort of visual obsession, uh, but um, it's a bit like sort of program music where we've lost the program. So we've got these works where we would have a much deeper experience with them if we knew this, these fascinating anecdotal um, process-related facts about the work. So why isn't isn't it incumbent on the artist, therefore, to uh, encode some of that meaning more overtly into the work?
2: Well, that's yeah, that's a good point. I mean, if like the Dorito, it's a triangle, so it's a pubic triangle, you know. So right. so if he made other work that sort of. Uh, he, um, extrapolated that as a metaphor into other triangular things. I mean, the 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 big panel with the what is that pattern? Were they hexagonal? Uh, the
3: tumbling blocks. Or? They
2: they come yeah. from the Ritz cracker uh, pattern. I mean, it, yeah, it should I mean we, not to jump ahead of ourselves, yeah. but looking at Alexey Worth's work, I thought I'm not smart enough to to look at this work. The, in this case, I just feel like he's leaving, he's withholding so much, and that there's so much that could be, in, perhaps interestingly uh, articulated in, in other in other ways, that mm-hmm. it, it feels just too thin to me.
1: Well, you see, when I mentioned uh, Matthew Barney, it's because um, with Barney you get I find, you just get more and more curious and you you, you say, I've got to find out what these symbols mean uh, or uh, the, these are symbols already, these are already rich symbols from uh, the occult, from Freemasonry, from American sport. They're being brought together um, and, and yet it doesn't feel whimsical and arbitrary. It feels like there's a new system out of all these systems and yet, um, so it makes me think, you know, it's, it's a bit like William Blake, it's, it's, a, it's a deeply personal but nonetheless uh, legible um, uh, lexicon.
2: Or the way that Thomas Pynchon plays out, paranoia. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: but with, with, with this, you've got to yeah. do, I think, a lot of... Uh,
2: so, like, I can imagine sort of a character in a Pynchon novel, like, getting obsessed with the patterns on Ritz, Ritz crackers, crackers. And, yeah. and sort of... And that it would turn out that it wasn't just insanity, but there actually was something encoded in in these things. So mm-hmm. that's, you know, that's pretty interesting. But potentially, maybe yeah. uh, Brock Enright isn't spent is spending enough time on his work to to, to like bring out. You know, we're just getting the little tip, mm-hmm. the these teases.
3: But I think that's the maybe a danger. I mean, as David was pointing out, and these. Um, These kind of lexicon, the lexica, I guess, that artists would develop materially in which it becomes a repetition within the work so that you have to kind of know all of the associations of that material and its previous uses and the kind of whole cremaster like anvil that comes down on you if you try and just, you know, t- nip into one part of it. And I think, I mean, for example, the large piece with that cubert <laughs> pattern, it, it has this name, and I've never heard of this word, coronographic, cr- which apparently means written by lightning, so w- there was this theory in the 19th century that if you were hit by lightning, you would it would have a kind of almost photographic representation that would happen of what you last saw, so it was like a lightning writing, and he had done Brock, Aaron his previous show, had done work about these kind of lightning traces, so already there's these kind of threads that are not, again, they aren't presented to you within the work coherently and then it, it does it become too much like a kind of press release art mm-hmm. that you need to like that's, that's decode like okay yeah. so this is what this means in his previous work or this is some association to like 19th century you know theories of metaphysics and mm-hmm. you know seances and lightning writing and all this so you know I, I do see that there can be that threat of, mm-hmm. of being kind of adrift in the work like oh do i need to know this lexica to be able to process this at all like is it there when i can encounter it as ken said as a as as someone without all of that but again you know any work is a process of self-informing you know sort sort of self-informing you know do i care enough to you know to look yeah well that's the key issue
1: because i mean when you go to a wagner opera you pick up oh there are these tunes that keep coming back uh, when you're a Wagnerite, you say, ah, that's the Siegfried motif, and you, you are waiting for it, and you're expecting it. Uh, so those two people are getting different, ex- different levels of experience from the Wagner opera, but they're both getting a valid experience, and they're both getting actually a related experience, and the one experience will take them deeper. And I think maybe Ken and I are having the trouble with the feeling that, you know, left on its own, the Ritz-Crackers are a kind of rather well-worn, schooly kind of gimmick, and when they become really profound uh, through this uh, auto-tessellation or whatever you call it, <laughs> well, um, I'm sorry I didn't read the, the footnotes to, to, to get that because what I was really left with were these uh, rather tricksy decorative panels that really have a kind of skill that you would expect from a good interior decorator. So... Um,
3: but I guess for me, what I really liked was the kind of richness of how well done some of the stuff was. I well, mean,
1: Well done, what do you mean? Well, I
3: mean, even these. this work right here, these are actually, this pastel work is a trompe l'oeil of these punctures. So it's a fascinating experience. There were three of them together to, to play with your expectation that what you're looking at is the cut or the puncture, the kind of Fontana-like, mm-hmm. you know, like breaking of the canvas into the support and then you're looking at something that is totally flat so there, there there were kind of stations in the show where these different experiences of a really you know I thought that they were really interesting visual you know experiences that I felt that perhaps there were a lot of them so it did at times feel like maybe this is just a gimmick cycle I'm on like next yes. next next so maybe that's just a question of how much work a show should have mm-hmm. and I thought and that showed there were you know and it's a small space and that's you know it's just kind of one of those yes. issues of actually
2: it. actually those pastels are so that, those drawings I liked and the a person in the gallery explained to me that they're, they're not they're actually pictures of Ritz cracker holes
6: mm-hmm.
2: and I I thought that's pretty interesting I mean to mm-hmm. to to make these kind of it's it is kind of jokey they're these big monochrome Abstractions and they're, you know, about Ritz crackers, and and, but there's kind of a transformation of scale and material, and and they're kind of lovely to look at. That, uh, yeah, I found those those the most marginally persuasive. Yeah,
1: as satisfying as a Ritz cracker. Well, let's uh, let's uh, let's bring in our audience now to to tell us uh, um, what they think of, of either of these shows, Lorna Williams or uh, um, uh, or Brock Enright, and it, it can be either. We don't need to go one to the other. We can uh, wherever you see a hand at uh, the back row, for instance. I did
6: ask the panel for a uh, consensus um, about Lorna Williams. And I don't know, I want. I was interested in your thoughts, Ken Johnson, on Lorna Williams, uh, especially since you spoke of a, you spoke of your sort of prophetic review that you gave her initially. Um, so I wanted to hear your sort of consensus on her, especially in light of Uh, her being a black artist and your sort of um, review I think in November where you said black artists did not invent assemblage in its modern form it was developed by white artists like Picasso, Kurt Schwitters Marcel Duchamp, David Smith and Robert Rauschenberg it was the art of people who already were about as free as anyone could be end quote um so that's the first sort of question, to hear your consensus. And then you also brought up the neo-Marxist juggernaut of art history. Um, could, could you maybe go into what you mean about that? And you also brought up alternative consciousness. Um, you said that was something that maybe you liked about Lorna Williams' work. So I'm wondering if you sort of maybe have a bias between sort of historical materialism, a Marxist term, Focusing on this sort of um, history of materials and the sort of metaphysical, it, does that create a tension for you? And can you again give your consensus on Lorna Williams? Wow! I... Wow! <laughs> uh,
1: I hope you can all stay till 10:30 because uh, uh, <laughs> there's quite a lot to consider there, Ken. But I mean, I think the uh, uh, I think what's really maybe. Of those three points, um, whether whether you're
2: oh, I think Lorna Williams is terrific. I really, I really like her work, and I I am eager to see where she goes from here. Uh, and I and I think that this you know there's a whole twentieth century history of of discounting metaphysics as something of serious interest in art and philosophy and in a lot of other places. That's Changed and is continuing to change uh, since the psychedelic revolution, but and uh, and I see here as part of that. But but when you have you know people in power in art historical positions of power who are still uh, consistently uh, on, uh, materialist uh, and where the idea of spirituality in art is is regarded as just as something embarrassing mm-hmm. to talk about, then. You know, someone like L- L- Lorna Williams, maybe, you know, which is in her work not being so explicitly political in a, a demo- demographic way, uh, you know, maybe she won't, it will take more time for her to uh, be embraced by the establishment.
1: Right. Okay. Um, um,
3: fine. But I think the hard, I mean, the hard thing about metaphysics
1: mm-hmm.
3: in art is that it does seem to set up a relationship between the work that is a, as a kind of dyad, I guess you could say, like it's sort of codependency of the spectator to understand and then for the work to kind of output something. And it's not really part of another tradition. And I guess one could say that it would be one that would have a communicative basis in which spectators Together, start to feel like the work says something to them about the conditions of their own existence.
2: You know? mean... Sometimes
3: spirituality can feel like it's it's a it's a relationship of it's such interiority within the subject that there isn't a communicative prospect to it of in terms of the social, you know, and that that's one of the limitations to me at times of of a metaphysics in art is that. Where, where did the social come in then you know in terms of like I have I'm moved by this work and it's a spiritual infusion or something but then where does that I go? think it
2: comes it, the issue then becomes like can can we the ability to think metaphorically mm-hmm. uh, on a level to think that the communication is is in in metaphorical terms not analytic terms not mm-hmm. it's not expli- explicated in a di- uh, Or is it digressive, way? But in in a poetic, in a poetic Mm -hmm. way.
1: And also the Marxists maybe some might be losing track of the fact that uh, just you know prior to the Russian Revolution in the decade or so prior to the Russian Revolution, the sort of revolutionary and artistic uh, uh, thought in in Russia, for instance, uh, combined. revolutionary ideas with, with theosophical and, and uh, metaphysical ideas. So this somehow this idea that perhaps someone like Benjamin Buclos in, in his dismissals of uh, the romanticism of, of uh, uh, the, the post-First World War period is very excessively kind of saying it's a deviation from the class struggle to deal with anything mm. that's classical or mythic or poetic or metaphysical. And that it's a very plodding kind of materialism that doesn't actually tally with a with a richer history of um, revolutionary um, ideas about the occult and and uh, social transformation, I mean someone like Annie Besant is not is did more for the revolution than Benjamin Butler anyway. So
2: yeah, and, and and I mean, what's derisively referred to as New Age culture is you know that there are huge populations of people that subscribe to all kinds of magical thinking, and, and they do sort of come together in different sorts of communities of, of diff, different levels of mm-hmm. uh, idiocy and genius. So
1: Yeah. Uh, I think we could certainly be here all night discussing the the second of the three points that Deshaun Dumas um, uh, put to you, and I'm going to therefore go back to the audience for more, more comment and feedback.
7: I, I,
5: I just feel like the kind of secret thing that unites the, these two works and then the Alexi Worth work that we're going to talk about in a minute uh, is this fear around gimmickiness, mm-hmm. and there's like an easy resolution, like that. Whenever that comes up in the work, like you don't like it, right? We don't like when it becomes a hen or a head. It's better when it's more ambiguous. And the same thing here was like, well, this is called art schooly or didactic, and, I, and I'm wondering like. What's the deal with with like gimmicky? <laughs> like, what do you think of that? And like, how how do you uh, navigate that as like an aesthetic or a, as a conceptual decision?
1: Hmm. Yeah. I think the. But, it, but the, sorry, it, Ken. Uh, we the, there's rich questions, but uh, I think the questions for everybody. So let's let's have more comments, more questions. But that that is, I think, that's key. That's a that's a, a key issue. Yes. Otherwise, yeah, uh, more more
7: comments. More
1: comments better than 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 questions. Yes,
7: I have a comment slash question. You don't yes. have to answer it. Um, just something to think about. Um, because you referenced literature, I just heard literature referenced a lot. And I know um, uh, in Lorna's exhibition, there's a piece called "Things Fall Apart." Um, I just wanted to get feedback on anybody's thought around that piece. It seemed as if it's uh, one of the more ambiguous pieces, but definitely has something that's tied to a mini. Um, So
1: Remind us of the, the look and feel of that the piece. The look and
7: feel is the, it's the one that's located uh, towards the wall that has two figures. One that seems like it's coming out of the hole of the stump, and then the other one that's perched at the end with the collaging and the bullet pieces and the pins mm-hmm. that are stuck yeah. in
1: uh, mm. the... Did, what, what, what was your particular feeling about it, then? Mm. Huh.
7: My particular feeling with the passing of Chinua Achebe, uh, taking in the fact that that's kind of a classic book to me, um, in the same sense as, a, I guess, a, a William Blake um, would be. Uh, I um, know the narrative of uh, Things Fall Apart, and I know the, uh, the, the part of the ebegis and how it's framed, the twins and how it's framed um, within the narrative of the story, and then I know what it means on the other uh, spiritual end as well. So it's like kind of a biased <laughs> approach. Um, it's, a very, it's a very strong piece. I think it's um, one of those things that crosses a lot of um, uh, areas, historical, literary, and then also the contemporary um, approach that she took, it, took uh, with, the proje- with the piece um, and what that means. Um, you want to know more? No, that's that's, already, okay. that's <laughs> a good start. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Cool.
1: So let's let's keep in mind the the, the very astute question about gimmick, and and, and, answer, and and I think it can and will resurface with uh, with our next two exhibitions. So let's go back to the PowerPoint. If uh, we can dim the lights, you know, one of those dichotomies. Uh, Um, I think it's, it's very hard for many of us to shake dualism, the dialectic, and, and, and one of the—I always like it though when a well-established dualism that it's, it's inhabiting one's way of looking at art is um, turned on its head by an exhibition. I, I have a little dualism, big dualism, in my mind that. There's the kind of art that really slows you down uh, to to have um, um, uh, uh, a a teasing, or else uh, the the kind of work where one uh, really has to engage with the physical surface of the work is often one uh, where there's a great deal of uh, uh, painterliness, if it's an image, a painted painting, uh, richness and ambiguity, and that. Um, when work has a kind of crisp, neat edge and it has a sort of illustrational feel to it it provides a very quick read and one, one sees it and one moves on or one uh, is, is taken to a, a conceptual place or a, uh, rather than actually dwelling with the material properties of the work and it seems with Alexei Worth that in many ways the works have a, a lot of kind of graphic quality to them um, there's uh, an immediacy, and there's the um, the, the crisp edge of, um, of illustration or the, or the comic book um, and yet in a funny way these are like old fashioned problem pictures that one, one, is, uh, uh, one, one is befuddled and uh, really have to stay and look and what the hell is this? How, how does this work? What is, what is he actually depicting? Where, where where do the fingers sit with this wine glass? Where is the stem? Where is the base? Where is the rim? Et cetera. Um, and so it's uh, a, a strange kind of... I find myself having to spend more time looking at an image to simply work it out, um, but at the same time, uh, um, uh, its, its surface is actually not that kind of lush, invested surface that um, one would, say, enjoy in a, an abstract painting of one's choice. Um, what I, so therefore, my, my, my first question to the panel is, is about speed. Are these, um, uh, what sort of, uh, how quickly does one read these images? And when you've read an image, does it, is it a bit like a paperback that you don't need to reshelve for, for later rereading? Um, uh, or is it? Uh, got it? Is it? Is it like more like a detective novel than a than a Tolstoy novel? I mean, um, uh, speed, sp- speed, and use. Um, how, how does that expe- affect our experience in the show, uh, Ken?
2: Well, <laughs> I have a fairly th- complete theory about them. But just to start with, I I, I found they're puzzling. In, in literally puzzling, and I had to have, I needed help. From, like, I could not figure out that, that the wine, what the wine glass was a picture of. I needed help from, from Ed, the director of the gallery. Um, I didn't understand the, 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 uh, the, the protest scenes. Uh, and some of the others I, I are f- clear, because I, I, I knew, uh, like the Eve reaching up for an apple so I think, uh, I think that with the, what he's constantly g- going around and around about on, I think that the apple represents the fall, and the fall is the fall into perspective, the fall into, into uh, seeing, being in space and only being able to see from one point. So every picture has something to do with being sort of, seeing but not but only but limited seeing in the, in the inability to see uh, actually to see the, to see existence the way God does. Hmm.
1: Eva, what sort of speed did you find yourself adopting with these works?
7: Well
3: I mean I guess um, I really just to back up a minute in terms of the way they're made that Ken was referring to... I mean they're very complicated because there's a mesh that overlays, um, an, you know, that is part of the frame, I guess. So there's this layering of what you see. So that it's it's through the screen essentially that the image comes to you, um, and the acrylic is um, it is has a quite a hard edge, as um, David had alluded to. Um, so I I thought that that play between the kind of obscurity of the image a little bit. Um, because of that mesh, but also the cartoonish simplicity of them was was rather interesting. I really loved the wine glass one, and I really loved there's one in which a and I guess it's because there was a large portion of negative space in that work, and there's one in which a lens cap is held, and so there's this perfect circle in the center of the rectangular um, image, and so you're looking at this kind of maw of darkness, and then it takes you a while to figure out what you're seeing. So there's this play between, you know, this showing you with nothing, you know, like blackness. But the other work, sometimes I wasn't all that curious about what was going on, or some of the ones that were more cartoonish, like the stacked heads of shadows, I think it very quickly went up. I, I It kind of left me going, I'm not sure what to make of this. Though, again, the, the sort of surface, complexity is really seductive to look at that mesh and the painting but I wasn't quite sure what to do with whether they were jokey or cartoony or you know so I guess yeah to me the negative space was really where I got I got drawn in because it played against the way that's that seductiveness of the mesh surface was so playful and you know sort of painterly and stuff.
1: (laughs) Chloe, um, humorous, profound both?
4: Humorless, useless. <laughs> I really, I, had, I didn't have an ex, a reaction to it. I didn't feel drawn to it or held to it at all. I, again, similarly, the, the mesh was seductive, but then the image was graphic, so I wasn't sure how those two played together at all. I think the point of view in terms of perspective is definitely what held me the longest. I do like the idea of the limited perspective. That's something that I thought a lot about. Um, looking down at the wine glasses, not knowing that there were wine glasses, looking down at Eve. I thought originally thought she was lying down, but she's actually reaching upwards, which was kind of interesting to me. And then the woman with the man sort of on top of her, like the stacked double head was interesting to me. And the lens cap, which looked like it could be kind of a fruit in mm-hmm. this massive hand in this small picture, surrounded by these big pictures. That was interesting too. So I enjoyed the point of view and the visual confusion. In an analytical, visual sense, but in terms of a visceral reaction, I didn't really have one, which is interesting because the first two shows very much, I think, in a sense, were metaphysical or visceral in some way.
1: Mm-hmm. These were more um, psychological in the sense of, uh, uh, not not in the sense of, uh, sorry. Uh, these are more perceptual. These are uh, perceptual. to do. With these are sort of problem pictures of perceptual psychology rather than. Um, rich cultural experiences, uh, is, that, is that where we're going with this? Right,
4: because I wasn't really sure what to do with the content of the, a lot of the imagery too. So mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, we have these two people smoking in a sort of empty room next to this Eve imagery, next to this very straightforward picture of a lens cap, next to these sort of Libyan-Syrian protest scenes. Mm-hmm. They felt mm-hmm. almost like the images were chosen because of their visual qualities as opposed mm-hmm. to anything mm-hmm. underneath them. Unless we're looking at like failure of society or malaise or something like mm-hmm.
2: that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um. yeah. I, I think they're about. I mean, I, I. It took me. I found. I mean, you talked about slowness. I found that the more I thought about them, the more interesting they become to me. And and I started thinking they're about entrapment, and you know the entrapment of seeing the world only through a camera. So the lens cap sort of. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I started thinking well the problem that with Alexi's work is there's no way out say unlike L- L- Lorna Williams' work where the, the way out is through magic or animism or some, some other state of consciousness and, that, and then I, that was when I thought oh that's why uh, you have drinking and smoking and windows and sex because those are sort of ways out of this kind of uh uh there are ways the of original, the man. original, they, it's sort of the original sin is is perspective, is being in perspective, and and those are ways of, of sort of dissolving the ego and self. I don't know if that's what uh, Alexei's so thinking,
1: perhaps but. These, perhaps these, uh, um, um, this Marxist juggernaut you're so fearful of would um, <laughs> would, would would like uh, Worth because of the um, both the alienation that he depicts and the material properties that he uh, is concerned with.
2: I don't know. What do you think, Eva?
3: <laughs>
2: Can you make a Marxist case for Alexi
1: Worth,
3: Ava? <laughs> oh, my, I'm, uh, okay, that's uh, that's. Tough. <laughs> you're a professor um, of art history. So <laughs> Come on. You know, well, I mean, I'm just going to back up back to the material because yes. it's what rubbed me both the right way and the wrong way. And I, I guess I just left kind of hating the color in this work. I don't know. I mean, it, <laughs> this is not the Marxist <laughs> like lineup, but there was just this kind of acrylicy, like cheapness to the way that, sorry, that's my baby out there. <laughs> oh. <laughs> She's not happy about this work. No, um yeah, there was just something that I didn't really love about the way it looked. It, it just felt like, was this going... It, it's, it had this kind of retro feeling like of the 70s, like some of this... Um, I don't know, maybe... I'm not sure. Maybe Maybe just that kind of figurative work that came after all of that experimentation of sort of 60s conceptualism, and some of that felt like it was in this work and and I really didn't like the crumpled paper hand stuff like I thought god why are you gonna do this over and over again and just as a motif it seemed like the like this kind of simplistic reading that you would give it like okay so this is about the end of paper or the end of a certain kind of like knowledge acquisition or distribution and and yet it just felt like a kind of like a little bit cheap as a gesture and not that interesting in terms of the colors, or something with it, like this pinkish tone on the. So, I'm I'm totally sidestepping your question, David, okay. to just complain but don't about. the... Uh, <laughs> in, in a way that uh,
1: they are really about um, grasping for the ability to visualize what can be seen, but it can ha- cannot be described. That. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, and therefore, in a way, to, to use lovely colour and to, mm-hmm. to generate um, uh, a, a, a sort of transcendently decorative kind of uh, uh, experience would actually militate against the job at hand, right. the work. That's well, I think, I
2: think... I mean, one of the things that runs throughout the show is, is issues of transparency. And, mm-hmm. like, the thing about language like the crumpled paper, I think, is like language is, is sort of a way that we can see through the world, but it's also only language. It's just, you know, it's like a Derridaean hell, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, I, you know, I, I it's interesting because I do, I, I think Alexei's work in the past has been more visually appealing I'm more,
1: hum- more humanist in a way as well. the early work was um...
2: but I really love the way he's sort of worrying about these issues mm-hmm. and and his willingness to be obscure about it and um, I you know it, he's it's like very distant it, it seems impersonal, but this feeling like you can't be in contact with the real like the the, the Egyptian scenes uh of protest there 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 are shadows of people looking at mm-hmm. at these images that's us like uh, half a world away sort of trying to make mm-hmm. sense of what people over there are doing so like we're we see through the, the media is transparent and yet it's not it's it's so there's this kind of uh, anguish uh, it's it's sort of I mean, maybe what we wish there was be is more sense of that in the making mm-hmm. of the stuff, but I don't, you know, I'm still willing to go mm-hmm. with it. Right, okay. So
1: how about the vision of the world offered by Wolfgang Tillmans? Um I am waiting to be enlightened as to why this man is a superstar, and I'm hoping these three very distinguished <laughs> critics of different generations, some my age, some older, some younger, so therefore there's no, there's no. can't blame my age for the fact that these look to me to be pretentious and unremittingly ugly <laughs> images. Uh, there's obviously something important here, and I'm missing it, so uh, who would like to be the first to begin to enlighten me? Uh, Chloe.
4: okay I know what you mean I I walked into that show and thought if I just spend enough time looking at exactly every single image I'll figure it out and that's kind of what happened Um, this is Tillman's first show where he's using entirely digital cameras which is interesting so he's got he's sort of playing with the scale with those huge digital printers so he's playing with the scale of these enormous um, photographs and these small ones and then this sort of the inkjet colours, those sort of colour studies. So there's that happening. And then there's also this you have somebody who's like a megastar multimillionaire traveling around the world. So then you have like a picture inside of a Maasai hut next to somebody packing fruit, next to like a fruit conference in Berlin, next to like a really fancy car. So there's that a sense of globalisation going on as well. Which I which is sort of take it or leave it. So I think those are the main themes, but I think, you know, the merit is in some of the individual photographs. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. I really enjoyed the one, um, I enjoyed the fruit logistica pictures I, just because those fruit arrangements were so alien and bizarre mm-hmm. and plastic and kind of separate. And I enjoyed the image of the woman in the, sh- in the plasticky shopping mall in the full hijab. That was mm-hmm. sort of interesting to me. And also the man with the beautiful like Armenian sort of Parajanov face in the middle of like, <laughs> those Pepsi and Cola signs, you know. Yeah. I thought that was very beautiful, too. That's about all I've got right now.
1: No, so you you found beauty by persevering with an initial alienation? Yeah,
4: I think so. And I think... I mean, I don't really care for the way he arranges things. I mean, I think it might have been interesting several years ago, but now it looks a bit like a Pinterest board or something like that. You know, it's, like, very social media-y. And I think sometimes it can work against some of the individual images, but I... 've always believed in some of his images to be very strong, and I think in this show mm-hmm. some of the images are very strong, mm-hmm. some of them are very intimate and very personal, and then others I could care less about.
1: so: mm-hmm. Right. Ken:
2: do, But do you, do, is, it, is it right to pick out to cherry pick I mean, isn't, isn't his project like you got it you're supposed to take, to take it all.. all of it, yeah. off, um,
1: but we're, we're at liberty to do what we like with it. I mean, who cares if he doesn't want us to cherry-pick? If, if we want to cherry-pick, let's cherry-pick. No, no,
2: no. I mean, it's a question, it's question of what are, the proper, what are the appropriate criteria to bring to, to judge the work right. by.
4: But I do kind of wish he would kind of... Maybe this is just my personal thing but I am a little bit sick of the arrangement in a way like I know we're Sickle. supposed to the arrangement-huh mm-hmm. I am you know I think it works against the strength of some of the images it makes it look a little bit like an MFA show or something I felt like I was at a Yale MFA photography show you know like some of this stuff's hung up some of it's pinned up some of it's taped up some of it's printed on the big printers out the back you know yeah and he's some risk- of it's not edited well you know
2: he's mm-hmm. responsible for that. Well, yeah, he started that. that, yeah. Mm.
4: Oh. He's like the, the harbinger of that <laughs> in every university, you know. And I, I I think it's I actually think that that's thankfully passing out of fashion, you know. Mm-hmm. So, with that fading away of that kind of impersonal, plasticky, like inkjet printerish sort of arrangement, mm-hmm. maybe if that were to, if he were to let go of some of that and let some mm-hmm. of his stronger images really shine. Images that only he could have taken on his kind of budget and his kind of mm-hmm. mobility, that would maybe improve the show immensely. But, but they, they, most they of the seem, images-
2: They seem to be driven by this, by, so ideologically driven uh, by this sort of uh, tiresome idea about globalism.
4: Yeah. You mm-hmm. know,
2: and inequities of wealth and... and uh, is he really a multimillionaire? I mean, mm-hmm. it just mm-hmm. that, that spectacle of being able to travel around like that and to make... Yeah. Uh, but most of those images really of are not,
1: those, not of not those uh, fruit conferences, uh, it, didn't, it didn't look like you needed a big budget to go and do not that. It looked like, like you whipped them off the internet. I, it actually, the, <laughs> almost all the images uh, had such a, uh, an inept and impersonal uh, quality that I didn't even know that they were necessarily... Mm-hmm. From his finger and his shutter, they, didn't, they, didn't need just, to, they, they certainly didn't need to be. Because out there, the out there on the web, out there on the web, there are plenty of images, uh, no worse than these, that one could fill Andrea Rosen Gallery with. So right, you maybe don't need any ju- budget at all.
4: Right, but maybe that's just the way that they're arranged because it looks so much like the internet. It's mediated to bring questions of the internet mm-hmm. to your eyes that you begin to think, oh, these oh. came from the internet. Mm-hmm. But if you can right. just let that fade away and zoom in on some of these images, they're very... The way he cuts up the picture plane, the way that he arranges figures, the way that he brings in plastic with organic, the different mm-hmm. facial expressions that he captures, he is very talented as a photographer. Mm-hmm. I think maybe he just came of age as a photographer in this sort of what-is-the-internet moment, mm-hmm. you know? Yes. I mean, he came to prominence as the internet came to prominence, mm-hmm. so maybe
1: that's part of it as well. Eva, yeah. did, you, did you find... Uh, Skill in the compositions that were 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 eno- uh, 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 energizing for you in, in in the show.
3: Well, I'll agree with Chloe, and because she marked certain images that I too found to be really um, just compelling to look at. The you know the guy with the mono brow, and you know these fruit display cabinets. Um, but that Tumblr, you know, or I guess you know he's the kind of you know, granddaddy of that Tumblr aesthetic of images, seemingly without relation. you know, so you have to grapple with like, okay, this is a picture of a car next to a mushroom next to the mono you know, whatever this, you know, and the the, the different scale and his definition of his practice, almost as a curatorial one because you know he goes in there and chooses the size of all these the arrangement and so this is a kind of atlas um, you know that could in a way bring us back to the you know the the mnemonic atlas of someone like Abby Warburg where it's about trying to stave off this kind of fear of what happens if images go away you know like to, to sort of this accumulation becomes almost compulsive and and that lack of editing that is so annoying about his work in yeah. a way is a, is a kind of program for him of, um, you know, of, of over producing you know, or as a kind of recovery against loss. Um, I mean, that's one way to put it, but the other way is that there's just too much to look at and that is, you know, as a practice is, makes you feel like just edit this a little bit better, you know, really bring out the strong stuff and, and don't, you know, sort of, this barrage this image bath that you have to kind of move through is it becomes yeah like what differentiates this curatorial eye from the you know the kind of a million tumblr pages out there you know in which all this different stuff is brought into relation and and it's too much to ever really come out you know feeling like you've dealt with something I don't know like, in a considered way, I guess. Right. right but is
4: that because we're right. in a gallery space that we want to see less? Is that why? Because I think about the image bath, mm-hmm. and I'm like, that's me every morning when I'm going on the internet, you know? Yeah. like, Is but, it because but, we're in this white cube that we need to see less, and everything needs mm-hmm. to be more considered, you know?
2: But he's he's really... He's, he's pre-internet, really. I mean, he started out as, as a film... Per, a person working with film, right? Right. Making, and... And... He's, uh, to, I mean, to me, he's more associated with that photography about photography, like someone like Rolie right. Etheridge, and mm-hmm. uh, who's younger, but but sort of uh, taking down the fetishization of th- the classic modern photograph, and sort of saying like all photographs are equally interesting. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so they have that quality that Dave is describing of of being like photographs that anybody could have taken. Some, mm-hmm. some like could be almost like accidental. Some look like uh, a skillful commercial photographer. I mean, it's yeah. a, and there's this whole culture of like someone like Christopher Williams going back to Sh- Sherry Levine's copies. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, it's and but all of that was predicated on a on, on a on a time of a history of photography that's in the past now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Like he's trans. He's trying to he's doing it with a digital camera now and, and I don't know if he's telling us, he's he's still telling us something about uh, old about a d- other kind of this old other kind of photography I mean I, I don't think he's really addressing what what the the tumblr this other thing this kind of constant mm-hmm. cascading of, of digital imagery and I, I don't know how that would be done but t- but Maybe that's why I don't, it doesn't feel uh, urgent to me. Mm -hmm.
3: Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, when you mentioned the Roe Etheridge thing that occurred to me in in seeing this Tillman show, and that occurred to me in a not good, (laughs) not as a good comparison, in the sense that those kind of random elements, seemingly random elements brought together without explanation, makes the viewer do just so much work, and when you compound that with a lot of work, as Chloe were saying, then you leave really exhausted, like, okay, so I'm making sense of the car next to the mushroom, next to, you know, the um, the Ethiopian market, next to a computer terminal, next to, you know, so there's just this associative exhaustion that happens where you're trying to figure out is and then also you know do I trust this artist in these comparisons is it just this game of deferring you know uh, the series you know into like these episodes of individual looking and then like you have to kind of like swipe it and then go to the next thing and swipe it clean and you just don't feel like anything builds
2: but you you mentioned Abby Warburg and I, but that that kind of collecting uh, uh, as I un- understand it in a limited way was was really about images the power of images mm-hmm. and it seems to me that and the
1: migration of symbols and the layeredness of meanings and yeah, uh, chance and, meanings and intuitive meanings and enforced meanings and symbols and codes I mean uh, it couldn't be, the world couldn't be flatter in Tillman's and it couldn't be um, deeper in, in Warburg.
2: And I think that's, that sort of accounts for whatever his popular, I mean, his pop, I don't know if you'd call it popularity, but his cachet, because it appeals to uh, 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 materialist, neo-Marxist cynicism.
1: And fashion at the same
2: time. Yeah, in a certain kind of fashion <laughs> yes. too.
1: Right. Well, there's an interesting <laughs> meeting of cultures, isn't there? Um, Alexei Worth and Wolfgang Tillmans are... Uh, we want to hear from our audience now. And uh, and, the, and the issue of gimmick that may or may not relate uh, to one or both of those artists and, and the artists this morning. Yes. Well,
5: I guess I was kind of... Um surprised at your reactions to Alexi's show, because I found that I had a very um, visceral reaction to the work. Uh, It seemed they were very much about loneliness and disconnection from the world, and I thought, and frustration, and I thought the fist, the crumpled things were not only about frustration, but... Had a kind of political edge to the, you know, the upraised fist kind of, and that that graphic quality of that image indicated that, and then the association with the crowds, but also the crowds, like Ken said, that had the shadows on them. Um, I thought the color of the darkness of the color in general made them feel very like, you know, lonely and. Even the lens cap one it just seemed like it. It didn't seem like a lens cap so much as like holding death. You know, it was like the void. You know, right in, in your hand. And, and so I had this constant feeling of, you know, frustration and disconnection and um, and kind of the inability to connect with the world outside of your immediate experience. There was like, you know, the puddles on the floor and. The way they were painted also had, again, that feeling of this... They almost seemed like they were projected, you know. And the screen, I think, in, intensified that in the fact that they were, you know, airbrushed so that... Uh, you know, I think one thing that Alexei always had in, in the paintings was this, like, sort of avatar of this kind of clumsy, you know, socially inept guy Gerberman I think you call them and I think that these paintings I, I thought there was sort of an unconvincing uh, you know avatar for for him since he seems very garrulous and, uh, and socially at ease but I thought that these paintings themselves kind of became that kind of person and um, and the projection things they were almost like you know like Plato's cave kind of thing so that you, you kind of they were less cartoony in a lot of ways than his earlier paintings. I think they were they were actually, you know, more specific in in their things. And and I you know didn't go with all of them, but a lot of the things with like mirrors that didn't reflect anything, and uh, you know, in smoke, you know, a very evanescence kind of thing, people smoking and, and stuff like that. I, I don't know. I I just felt that they had a much more. They weren't so like gimmicky intellectual, I thought that they were much more about trying to get to a very specific experience and on the other hand the Wolfgang Tillmans, I always liked Wolfgang Tillmans things, I thought this was, um, I agree with you but I I think that there was something really missing which was this um, except in a few cases like the guy with the monobrow but yeah. don't they usually have a lot more like young couples and people in relationships and, and it, I thought that there was like Less an actual kind of human connection of you know of people, and much more uh, like this disconnected. You know, I'm touring the world. Kind of, this is what I see, and and maybe it's the uh, digital camera because I, f- I find with my own digital practice that there is a certain kind of formalism that takes over with the digital camera. makes it very easy to make very formal. You know, close-ups of things, or Um, you know, arrangements of of things, and maybe the film, you know, gave it a much, you know, more arbitrary kind of thing. But I found them very, you know, just very cool.
1: Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Worth is warmer than one thinks. (laughs) (laughs) Tillman's colder. Okay. Anybody else? Um, Any other comments on on either of those shows or both of those shows, Um, Tillman's and Worth? Um, No, I think we're ready to to see if we can uh, uh, swim our way home through uh, (laughs) through the storm. Thank you very much, and see you in the fall.